Well, good morning. Good morning. I use this as the thing? How's everyone doing? I don't know. It's like flippy. I think this is a good setting. Okay. Oh, can we go to the Oh, I have the flip. Is it next one? All right. So I guess my first question is, Jason, what color is my slide supposed to be? Because <laughs> I uh, obviously wasn't in tune with these gold. Oh, all right. Very cool. Um, so when Josh asked me four months ago to preach on Matthew 19, which then I looked it up and realized it was the rich young ruler, I didn't really know how to respond besides, what's that supposed to mean, man? Come on. Um, but this passage has been on my mind for the last four months. And when you have something like this on your mind for four months, it really changes the lens and focus of how you see the world. Um, and bringing in the last almost 34 years, as Sayla pointed out, into that four months has been quite a journey, to say the least. So I know we read it really quickly. Um, the, uh, the confirmation group read half of it, but where'd Adam go? Oh, I'm going to have you read um, one more time the full, the full scripture. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Also, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all of these, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the, your, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded and said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but for God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, Look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or field for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. All right. Thank you. So for me, at least, when dealing with passages that touch on money, that touch on wealth, that touch on power and possessions, in our context, it evokes for me um, anxiety. It evokes fear. It, invo it evokes the sense that how can I take what we're dealing with now in our day in our context, and then take what's happening 
in what, 30 AD in their context, and how do I transplant that for my action today? So I think one thing that would help us to kind of kick this off is I think something that we struggle with as a church is being rather private around this topic, which hopefully we'll get at today, is I want you to turn to your neighbor and I want you just to talk about... <laughs> your w I'm serious. Your W-2 earnings and how much you gave to the church, okay? Obviously, I'm not serious. But I think for right now, there's people in here that are, that evokes a lot of, oh, really? I have to talk about that? And this is more of an extreme idea in this sense. But I think I'm not alone when dealing with this, when talking about this, or thinking about this private side of money, when we as a church are very communal, right? We do everything together. We partner together. We share things. We do ministry together. But then when it comes to this topic, we're kind of quiet about it. And so I think we'll, get, we'll touch on this more, but am I, does that make sense? Yeah? Anyone else just have some res, res, like reservation about sharing how much you made last year? Is that weird? It's kind of weird. Um, but I guess the question is why, why does it do that, right? For me, a lot of it comes down to being growing up in a household where it wasn't talked about, in a church where it wasn't talked about, in a society where it was private. And I think one of the, the passages that sticks out in my head when we talk about any sort of ministry or tithe or which relates to money is don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, right? When you give or when you do things of that nature. That's where it comes from for me. And for me, this actually plays really heavily into this last three years of my life and then a year prior to that discovering how do I take this fear and anxiety around this topic, how does it parlay into my career, right? How do I provide for a family? How do I do a job where I feel as though I'm orientated towards the kingdom but I'm trying to, after four kids, put food on the table, right? and also be fulfilled in what we call vocation. And we discovered that through vocation groups. And for me, it was a transformational um, moment about three years ago. When right now, I feel like I have been more freedom talking about this topic in my career, in my vocation, than I have felt my whole life. And it was a change in structure in my job, in my career, in my path of where I was going. What happened was about four or five years ago, I was looking for... Um, I guess that anxiety was projected onto me when I was thinking about being content in my position where I was. As an account manager at Rust Reed, I love Rust Reed, Tamara. Um, this isn't a knock on that at all. But for me, that position created a, an environment where I felt suppressed. I felt like I couldn't move forward. Um, I felt that I had to be content with whatever I was given because if I tried to do better or achieve or get a raise. I felt like that was something of being boastful or greedy. Um, and these are kind of values that I grew up with. Maybe I put them on myself or I interpret them incorrectly from this book. But once I stepped away from that, I went into a position where I went from this salary structure to this commission-based structure, which is just 
for me, it was freeing to me. I think some people that would be crazy, right, to move away from a structured salary. But for me and my disposition and how I am as a person, that was one of the biggest changes for me in my life, which allowed me so much more freedom at work and hopefully made my life at home much better as well. All to say, it took a lot of moving away from this anxiety and fear and being okay of, how do I move into this structure where it's way different and that we don't see very often in scripture to allow me to, to, allow me to have that. I think that just names one of the tensions that we have. Um, and I would just say, if you're feeling like that in your work, like, don't be held down to the structure you're in, right? And we'll talk about that a little more with that fear, but. A couple of tensions that I have been dealing with and wrestling with is it's easy for us to position ourselves to go into a scripture like this. I want to talk about some tensions and I want to talk about some context. It's really easy for us when we're talking about wealth. I mean, the obvious thing here is, oh, we're all wealthy. We're all the rich young ruler. Look across the world today, right? But also we have to really look at, man, we're living in L.A., and the wealth that we think we have isn't, isn't a lot here, right? It isn't like, oh, great, you have a car, so you're good to go, and you're in the top 1% of the world, so easy-peasy life, right? Um, going down to, and I think we see that right now with kind of this, the movement away from church, right? We have some people leaving our body, and probably for opportunity, probably for some of these financial pressures, and we also have this tension of, man, we're so privileged because we're here, but maybe it's not so much privilege that we think, okay? Um, we're wrestling with that. We're wrestling with this position that we can read the scripture from versus the realities of the pressures of our context pushing people away and not allowing us to be in communion together. There's a, there's a big polarizing sense, I think, in a scripture like this to look at practical versus spiritual, Okay? Often you'll hear this really spiritualized. Oh, he's just talking about wealth and whatever that means to him in a spiritual sense. And then there's the other extreme of, no, this is really about giving up all your possessions and selling it away. So there's that tension right there that we hear about a lot. There's also the tension between what did the Roman occupancy economy of this day, how does that deal with post-Trump economy? And I'm not saying Trump is obviously uh, depicting our economy or pushing it forward or any sort of driver in that matter. But there's kind of a Caesar-Trump connection there, right? <laughs> and how do, we, how do we deal with it then when upward mobility wasn't even really a, uh, an option, right? You're in your class. You have occupancy of the Roman Empire in your village, in your town, and you're set by structure. Everyone knew your, your, your structure, your status, your system by your clothes, by your job, by your last name, okay? There wasn't any sort of mobility. I couldn't just go move careers to find something that better fit my disposition, right? And the privilege in the mountainside diaspora, that's what I was calling it. But we, it's easy for us to say we're, we're privileged, and, but there's also this reality going on right now. So I just want to name some tensions that, that um, exist around this passage. Budgets, I thought about budgets a lot. Budgets are something that we 
put it in place to help us, but then kind of cause sometimes these constraints about how we're generous, right? Even within households, I hear a spouse being like, oh, I need a budget, I need a budget to live by. And the other one's like, oh my gosh, that budget drives me nuts. I can't even use it. But all around this topic of wealth and money and the power it has on us. Thoughts on that? Any other tensions? That if you come, you come to a passage like this and already have kind of in your mind? No? Okay. Fair enough. A um, little bit of context before getting into this. Obviously, we've, we're coming off, um, we've gone through Matthew, we're done through the Beatitudes. You guys heard about Josh last week talking about um, forgiveness and moving towards that conflict. Um, the lens that we have, it's, it's pretty funny, last week I spent at a conference uh, down in Carlsbad um, in this really nice area, fancy hotel, sitting outside at the pool, trying to read this stuff, and it just did not make sense. I, could, I couldn't do it. Yeah, and so that's the fogginess that, of your context, I think, can bring into the lens that you bring to, this, to a passage like this. So hopefully we're unpacking, getting, getting close to that. The parables prior and after are really important to look at. There's various two um, economic-based, money-based, um, transaction-based parables surrounding this passage. One is about a king with slaves who have debt. Prior to this, in the next chapter, we're going to read about the laborers in the vineyard and how they go out and what they do with the, the land they have and the return on the investment and the value and all this stuff and how Jesus just obliterates that. Those are two parables that are the sandwiches and the bread around this passage. And I think you probably saw earlier, it's really important to notice that this is not a parable. Okay? This is not the kingdom of God is like this. This is a man coming through and the concrete nature of these parables about the kingdom of God and wealth actualized in this narrative. Okay? So we can't use that as well. Oh, Jesus, what are you talking about in this parable? No, this is, this is real stuff according to Matthew, right? And I think one thing we always have to keep in mind as we read any scripture here is the trajectory of where this is going, okay? 1722, he says, hey, my next stop is Jerusalem, where I will be handed over, where in essence I will be glorified or crucified. Same in 20, around this chapter, Right? My next stop is going to be Jerusalem, where I'll be handed over, and I'll be crucified. Okay? So the readers in this context are also going to be hearing this as a story one time, right? They would sit in, let's say, 100, 200 AD. One person would read this narrative out loud, and they'd all read Matthew all the way through. It wasn't like a redo, and, yeah, you get five verses to talk about. Okay? They read the whole thing through, so they have this fresh in their mind here, they have this fresh in their mind here, then they hear the story in the middle. Okay? Um, can you imagine reading all of Matthew once? <laughs> One of my um, professors did that, our last day of class, Yarkin, APU. He read Revelation all the way through in one sitting, as it was like a cool prize for the end of the class or something. <laughs> and I remember starting out, that I remember all of a sudden we're like in chapter 17. I was like, wait, what just happened to the last 10 chapters? <laughs> 
fell asleep or something. <laughs> but they didn't have, you know, fidget spinners, or they didn't have things to keep them awake. They were, you know, in tune with this passage and probably just, like, eating it up, too. So that's the trajectory of where we're going, so we can't, we can't lose sight of that. Because that first century audience, that the crucifixion and the resurrection was on their mind through this. Okay, so I'm going to try to share some thoughts that I have on the scripture. Spending four months, just kind of go through this, and then hopefully we'll get to some, get to some things that make sense for us. Then someone came, right? Then, it's like the other passages that say, hey, look, what's now, right? What's, catch your attention, because this is important. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? Okay? Um, have eternal life. In the Greek, this is talking about, like, get. How can I acquire? How can I transact? What can I do to make... To get eternal life, what do I have to give, right? It's a very economic term in that sense. It's a very possession-oriented term. Why do you ask me about good, right? There's only one who's good if you wish to enter into life. Keep the commandments, okay? First thing I notice here, Jesus kind of flips this on his head. and He doesn't say you can't get or have eternal life. He changes the verb. And I'm big on this because I studied Bible in college, so like the hermeneutics and looking at the verb structure and stuff. It sticks out to me. But he changes the have to enter, right? He changes, the, he changes it from a marketplace transaction to like a road, to a journey. He takes away kingdom of life and adds life, okay? So he flips this whole question on its head right, right from the beginning. And I think that's important because, yeah, you, I mean, we talk about this all the time. Grace and salvation isn't transaction. It isn't something you give up and you get. But it's you're entering into this life where this reader in the audience knows where this life is going, okay? They know that in the next several chapters is moving towards Jerusalem, is moving towards the cross, okay? That's got to be scary for this person. So keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Like anyone who's really good growing up in the church, all I got to do is keep the commandments. That's pretty awesome. Which ones? Oh, you shall not murder. Check. You shall not commit adultery. Check. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witnesses, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Is love your neighbor as yourself in the commandments? Hmm. Um, and he could have just stopped there, right? He had them checked. The young man said to him, I have kept all these, what do I lack? Okay. So before going into that, the commandments... This was a part that stuck out to me as well because Jesus only lists the five commandments on the side. And they're called the secondary tier, the second commandments. These are the exterior commandments. These are stuff you do with people. Okay? And what I felt was interesting, the one that he leaves out, plus he adds love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus, right? And that's kind of the epitome of the commandments in its entirety. Okay? The one he leaves out is covet neighbor's possessions which is part of that second tier and that second structure, but he doesn't name it. Which, in my mind, I didn't read any commentaries on this, but it's kind of a really sly, cheeky way of saying, oh, I left this one out, huh? How about that one? Did you get that one? Because everyone knows the commandments if you're in first century Jewish context. Okay? The other ones he leaves out, no other God before me, no idols, Lord name in vain, remember the Sabbath. These are all covenant commandments with Yahweh. 
The other are of people commandments with his people. Karl Barth says, In the New Testament sense, it is not possible either to love one's neighbor without first loving God or to love God without then loving one's neighbor. We can and must say indeed that in this unity of the command of God, there is reflected the mystery of the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe that doesn't settle in with this young guy, this rich guy, this, this ruler, and other passages that talks about him having property. But it has to be st- uh, stick out for the reader at this time. That you can't have one without the other. You can't love God without loving your neighbor. And if you truly have these possessions and you fulfilled all this, then you're already giving a lot of this away because you're loving your neighbor. That's what God called you to do. But of course he says, oh, I've kept all these. So what do I lack? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give, them, give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Right? You have to do this action first. And I think almsgiving may have been pretty prominent in this time period, but not to this extent. And this guy was just, wait a minute, you're hitting on the one thing that's most important to me that I control, that I identify with. Then come follow me. Follow me to where? Where are these disciples going? Jerusalem, right? They're going right to the center of the powers. Josh talked about last week in conflict. We go right, the firemen go right to the fire. Okay? They're going there. That's their direction. They're literally walking towards Jerusalem. And no wonder. The reality is, in that time period, in this time period, people with wealth, people with power, they're not getting crucified. Okay? They're not being tortured for the large sense. They're not being kicked across the border, taken back. Because they have value to add. They have, they're furthering the economy. They're doing things in a sense of privilege that others can't. Right? That's not happening. So this guy, why would he do that? Why would he give this up to go die? Okay? So I think there's a very tangible, specific, particular money issue here that's, that's real. Okay? It's not necessarily some spiritualized topic that he's dealing with. So then the man walks away with a heavy heart. Jesus turns to the disciples and says, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven as they watch this man walk away. Again I tell you, and in the scripture, when you repeat something twice, that's like six exclamation marks. And hey, listen up. That's why I tell my kids, listen, please. You're not look in my eyes and talk to me, right? Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Okay? And there's a lot of talk about what this camel means. It's a metaphor. And you hear things about, like, there's this gate in the side of the wall in Jerusalem where the camel has to get down on its knees and take off all the luggage and, like, walk through this little hole in the wall, and that's the eye of the needle so the camel can enter in and obviously removing the possessions and the luggage to get down, right? 
from what I looked into, Cam, or let me look this up so I say my Greek correctly. Um, Camilos in the Greek means camel or rope. Okay? In Aramaic, gamla means rope and camel. So, most likely, this is probably talking about some big rope that was used, like on a shipyard, going through the needle when talking about sewing carpets in that time period. It could have the camel, not to say it doesn't have a better effect and sound cooler about the camel going through the needle. I almost brought like Tiago's toy camel and a needle and had someone try to like put it through. But it's probably more like a rope. But either way, you have to unravel that rope to get through that needle. Or I told Jordan when we were processing this, why don't you just get a bigger needle? <laughs> right? Think outside the box. Um, either way, this is repeated, this is emphasized, this is, um, this is the crux. And this is a warning. It's very evident here. And the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded and said, and who could be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals it is possible, for God all things are possible. Ugh, that's a hard one. Um, then Peter said in reply, look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What then will we attain, acquire, possess? Jesus said, and truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you will have followed me. You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone has left the houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields. For name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last will be first. This one's, this one's hard for me. You have a whole other passage or preacher on this one. But leaving your family to follow me and being rewarded for that? Man, that, like me leaving my kids and my wife to go follow somebody, and that's, that's a tough one. I was thinking about it. We, we glorify and we honor people leaving their families for, like, military actions, right? What if we took that and took it to, like, going towards the poor, going towards the kingdom of God and the work in communities, right? Take that for what it's worth. So, while the kids are coming in, or part of the kids, what does this mean for our church, 2017, San Gabriel Valley, L.A., post-Trump economy? I think the first thing we've got to do is talk about this topic and get beyond the fear and anxiety we have and the shame we have. Um, we've got to name it. We've got to be more open about it. Because it's real and it's here, and it's a big topic for us that we often push to the side. And when we have fear about this, and when we don't talk about it, we inadvertently put money, wealth, power up on a pedestal as it having fear, having power over us. And that power is not driven by the kingdom. That power is not what Jesus is talking about here. We create that. Okay. So the first step for us to kind of move away from this and maybe refocus our mindset. It's just to simply be open to it. And I say for Gabe, shame on us for not being a part of Money Matters. Life group. <laughs> that was our avenue. So hopefully, I'm trying to give you a little plug, you know? Got soccer now, man. Oh, you got soccer. 
Um, but we afford it power it shouldn't have over us and it doesn't have over us. And I think going back to my first comment about being free in my, in my vocation, like that's something that I've totally learned in the last three, four years. And it's freeing, guys. Um, but it's tough because you walk this line of how do I talk about it and not, and not be boastful? Or have other people see me and perceive me as boastful? How do I talk about it in a humbling manner but the reality that someone else is struggling with it too. And we hit on this last week with like the FOMO, right? How, how do we talk about it when, shoot, Deborah's here last week talking about her situation and she's open and vulnerable about her economic situation. And that ties right to our house because she stayed with us. And I remember when she first stayed with us, I remember thinking, oh, we can't let anyone know. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. I don't want people to think we're doing this out of some moral high ground. But our church and the reality, and then it went on Facebook. Hey, Deborah's staring at the bolts. Anyone have food? I was like, oh, man. Right? And that, for me, like, broke down that barrier and said, okay, we're doing this together. We've got to be open and transparent and, and vulnerable in this regard. And it's going to be hard. But I think we've got to do that. And freedom in this area will also allow us to speak into each other's lives. Be prophetic around this topic. To call each other out when we think that we are not holding our possessions loosely. When we are hoarding things or we're not giving of ourselves in the way we should. And we got to be comfortable in doing that. We have to be comfortable in being able to speak and call someone out on something because that's what we're called to do as a body. The other thing that I think we have to look at is how do we train ourselves in our practices to have a mindset and orientation that is not fogged by our context? To see these passages for what they are and live in that. Okay, to enter that life. And confirmation, I think of you guys, and this is not just for us. I know you guys score on birthdays. You're going to be having jobs soon. Tutoring Spanish, Zach, I hear that. Huh? Is that the Smith LLC consulting group? I would encourage you guys, be that voice in your families. Okay? Call your parents out when you know that we're not holding things loosely. Okay? It doesn't have to come from the adult. This is not just for if you're 34 and older, okay? Or on your fifth career. But, but how do we train to move ourselves towards the kingdom? What little steps do we do? And in our life, we do things, um, and I'm not comfortable or vulnerable yet enough to talk about it in a communal setting, which says it needs some work maybe. But we do stuff around the first fruits in our life to make sure that as money happens, that we're keeping our mindset on the right thing, okay? Um, but again, we got to talk about it. Last thing, the possibility, is it possible to enter the life? And I think we can't, we can't use that phrase, with God all things are possible, as a cop-out. I heard a po poet, 21st century poet say, just 
Blame it on Jesus. Hashtag blessed. They ain't ready for me. Uh, right? Bruno Mars? No? Okay. How did it land? But we can't use it as a cop-out. Okay? We can't use this as a thing of saying, oh, God, all things are possible, so let me just run my life and not, not worry about it. This is a reminder of the transformative, subversive power of Jesus to unleash in us the vulnerability to be straight with each other, to be prophetic, to hold things loosely, and to follow him into this new life. Into a new life that leads us to this table to come, eat the bread, drink the wine. And I think for some of us, this table today could mean leaving what we hold tightly, the possessions. Some of us, it could be leaving fear and anxiety around this topic that has held you back in a lot of ways. But either way, we bumble, thank you for that reminder, Jason, towards this table, through sermons, with each other. And we do it all around entering into that life with Jesus. So service, could you come forward? Are we okay on time, Josh? Yeah? Are kids coming in now? So as they got towards Jerusalem, as before they entered to that week, on the Last Supper, he took the bread. Bread? And he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you, the world. How many of these do I do? Two. And he took the wine, the table wine, and he poured it out saying, this is my, my blood which is poured out for you. So as the kids come in, all are welcome at this table and leave at this table what you may or what you want and take with you the knowledge of knowing that all things are possible and to not live in that fear as we enter our week.